Heads and welcome to American Prestige. I'm Danny Bessner here, as always, with my friend and comrade Derek Davison, and we are excited to bring you the news. Derek, let's start with the uh, ceasefire in Sudan and what's been going on since we talked about it last week. Yes, uh, over the weekend, the Sudanese military and the rapid support forces agreed to yet another ceasefire. This one starting Monday evening and lasting for seven days, with the goal of uh, allowing humanitarian relief to get into combat areas, particularly Khartoum and its uh, sister cities. The deal was negotiated uh, as part of these ongoing talks that the two sides are having in Saudi Arabia that are being mediated by the U.S. and Saudi Arabia. It was the first, as as people who have been following the story no doubt know, that th- these parties have, have uh, agreed on several ceasefires. I've lost track of how many they've, they've actually agreed to and have honored none of them. Uh, they've all just continued, they've just continued fighting through all of them. Uh, but this was the first one that was put to paper. Uh, and so there was some hope or there has been some hope that it might actually stick. There's also a monitoring mechanism, uh, set up by the U S and Saudi Arabia. So that's different. <clears throat> Again, this is sort of. This sort of contributed to hopes that this one might be different, that this one might actually stick. Uh, I regret to uh, be the bearer of bad news, but it has not stuck. Uh, the fighting, there was a flurry of fighting just before and just after the ceasefire went into effect late Monday. Uh, and then there does seem to have been a lull for, let's say, maybe 24 hours, maybe less, uh, especially in Khartoum and its environs. But the fighting has picked up again. There are now reports of new fighting in Darfur, uh, again, if you've been following this, you know that there have been fighting, there's been fighting in West Darfur and South Darfur. Uh, there's now reports of, of new RSF activity in Central Darfur. Uh, so that's another expansion of the conflict. Uh, the prospect of humanitarian relief actually getting to people who are trapped in the combat zones, obviously not great because, again, the fighting hasn't really stopped. Now, the U.S. and Saudi Arabia are supposedly tracking ceasefire violations. The two sides are continually accusing one another of uh, perpetrating these violations. But I don't know what the the enforcement mechanism is here. The U.S. has threatened to sanction senior officials on both sides of this conflict. Uh, It may pull the trigger on that. It doesn't seem like that threat has been enough to really scare anybody into line. There are also questions about how much control, practically speaking, the senior commanders. So uh, Abdel Fattah al-Burhan on the military side and uh, Mohammed Hamdan Dagalo on the RSF side and their you know chief lieutenants, how much control they actually have over on-the-ground fighters uh, and commanders at that level, uh, it may not be very much. So uh, again, ceasefire still technically there, still technically in place. They are technically tracking violations, but for, for all intents and purposes, it sounds like uh, they are back to full bore fighting again after a, a brief lull. Terrible news, but we'll, we'll keep you updated. Derek, let's talk about the Turkish election and also all, all your prestige heads. Unsurprisingly, we will have a special after the runoff, so keep your ears open for that. But Derek, give us a preview of the Turkish electoral runoff. 
So um, as we, we talked about after the first round last week, the, the runoff based on how the first round ended with uh, Recep Tayyip Erdogan nearly winning the incumbent, uh, obviously nearly winning uh, a first round outright victory coming, you know, within, uh, I think, six tenths of a, a percent of getting to the 50 percent line. Um, it, it sets up quite well for him to win re-election uh, over Kamal Kilic Darulu, the, the second place finisher. Uh, the one development of note, I think, this week is that uh, Sinan On, the right-wing nationalist who uh, finished third in the election with about 5% of the vote, uh, endorsed Erdogan on Monday, which is not that surprising. They are ideologically fairly simpatico, uh, and On uh, undoubtedly saw which way the wind was blowing in the first round and wants to be on the winning team, so to speak. Uh, I'm not, I'm, it's unclear what, if anything, Erdogan might have offered uh, in exchange for his support, but you know we may find that out at some point. I did see a poll uh, shortly before we recorded this on Thursday that uh, put Erdogan and Kilic Darulu in a statistical tie heading into the runoff. This is one of many polls that had Kilic Darulu winning the first round and possibly winning an outright first round victory. So I don't uh, think that uh, there's much reason to give it a lot of credence. Uh, if anything, a tie in, in these polls probably suggests that Erdogan is doing uh, is on track to win uh, more than anything else because the consistent uh, error seems to be the, that they're undercounting uh, Erdogan's support. But, you know, just to throw that out there, that that is a poll that uh, is in the field and was released on Thursday. Again, I, I expect uh, Erdogan to win the runoff. Uh, I don't see any reason to question that, but, um, you know, anything can happen, I guess. Anything could happen, prestige heads. Never forget it. Uh, all right, D, let's move on to Iran and its building of a new nuclear facility. So this was a big scoop from the Associated Press this week. There's apparently satellite imagery uh, that shows the Iranian government is building a new underground nuclear facility of some kind uh, on the site of or near at least uh, its nuclear enrichment plant at Natanz. Uh, the Iranians say that it is a new centrifuge manufacturing plant, which would replace the above ground manufacturing plant that was uh, people who are uh, keep in touch with this story will know was heavily damaged by an act of sabotage back in 2020 that was most likely perpetrated by the Israeli government on some level or Israeli intelligence. What is uh, apparently of concern here is that from the look of the satellite image imagery and uh, I guess the uh, amount of earth that's been moved out as they're digging down to, to build this facility, it looks like it may be far enough underground to thwart even the most sophisticated powerful U.S. bunker buster bomb, the GBU-57. The U.S. has has a sort of plan in place if it decides to uh, conduct an airstrike on a hardened Iranian nuclear facility to use two of those. It seems like, based on the available physical evidence, uh, as again revealed by these images, uh, that this site would be deep enough to be impervious even to a double-tap strike with that that weapon. Uh, This is, of course not hugely interesting unless you're uh, of the opinion that Iran's nuclear program is a potential threat and mandates uh, some kind of could mandate some kind of military response. Unfortunately, that is the position of, for example, the Israeli government. It's also the position of at least certain elements within the U.S. government. 
So the fact that Iran is building a facility that can't be necessarily easily struck from the air raises a whole lot of concerns about what uh, one or both of these parties might do to try and impede that construction or uh, stop it altogether. Uh, there are senior Israeli military officials, including, I think, the National Security Advisor, Israeli National Security Advisor, who are talking openly about attacking uh, the site. Uh, and so, you know, this is this is something uh, of serious concern. Now, Iranian officials, the director of the Atomic Energy Organization of Iran, Mohammad Eslami, uh, said on Wednesday that the new activities that are going on at Natanz, referring to this digging and, and the construction of the new site, are going to be coordinated with the International Atomic Energy Agency, which is supposed to inspect and monitor Iranian sensitive Iranian nuclear sites. So, you know. The Iranians seem to be trying to assuage uh, maybe some of the worst fears of, of folks in the West uh, to say that we're going to ma- make sure that the IAEA knows what's going on here, that they're able to monitor activity. Uh, who knows if that will be enough? Probably, you know, it's, it's anybody's guess at this point. There was also a, a story this week, another one of these documents that, that's come out in the big Discord leak. Uh, where U.S. intelligence uh, is is speculating that the Israeli government is probably planning or at least considering some kind of a military strike on Iranian nuclear facilities, but the U.S. doesn't really know what the Israelis are planning or doing, uh, which is uh, not great. Now, the Biden administration publicly has repeatedly, officials in the Biden administration have repeatedly all but greenlit the idea of an Israeli attack on uh, Iranian nuclear sites um, basically saying, you know, it's up to the Israelis. We're not going to tell them what to do, which is a shift in rhetoric from the U.S., which had previously, uh, you know, pop, perhaps not under the Trump administration. That was a bit of an aberration, but has in the past kind of said that that would not be helpful. It would not be terribly uh, great for regional stability for the Israelis to undertake something like that. The Biden administration seems to be saying, you know, it's not our problem. If they want to do it, they can do it. Uh, so all of this is lining up for potentially some kind of Israeli attack on an Iranian facility, uh, which is not great. There's also news on Thursday that the Iranians had tested a new 2,000-kilometer uh, ballistic missile um, I don't have all the details on that, but that is also not something that's going to go over terribly well uh, in Israel and the U.S. So that may only ratchet things up uh, a bit from where they already are. Thanks, Derek. Uh, let's move on to the Russia-Ukraine war, because there's a lot to talk about. Why don't we first start with the uh, sabotage operation that happened in Russia? So on Monday, the Russian government said that uh, its security forces were dealing with what it called a sabotage group from Ukraine. Uh, they were uh, undertaking activities in Belgorod Oblast, which is a, a, the Russian province, one of the Russian provinces that's right on the Ukrainian border. Uh, the governor of that province talked about a counterterrorism operation that was underway uh, very close to the border. And, uh, you know, this obviously raised a lot of eyebrows. The Ukrainian military... Uh, denied involvement in, or the Ukrainian government, I should say, really denied involvement uh, in this uh, incident or action. It pointed to two Russian, ostensibly Russian militant groups, one called the Liberty of Russia Legion and the other one called the Russian Volunteer Corps, which has uh, been a- active at other times during the, the war in Ukraine. Uh, this is, uh, you know, this is sort of a, a dodge. It's kind of semantics in that Technically, I think these units are made up of Russians, 
but they are getting substantial Ukrainian assistance. They're, uh, they operate from Ukraine, uh, and they're anti Vladimir Putin. Uh, I don't know if you can go so far as to say they're pro Ukraine, but they're certainly getting backing, uh, from Ukraine. So this is, this is a bit of a, uh, a kind of, uh, rhetorical dodge, I guess. Uh, there were reports of attacks against government buildings, uh, in Belgorod, uh, other, you know, other incidents. By Tuesday, it sounds like uh, the Russians had dealt with this. They claimed to have driven the Ukrainians out of Russia and killed dozens of them, destroyed uh, a couple of vehicles. There were uh, apparently U.S.-provided armored vehicles uh, that were involved in this operation, which is uh, another signal that these guys are getting support from Ukraine because the U.S. gives these vehicles to Ukraine and the Ukrainians give them to the the Russian uh, cutouts, I guess. Uh, The... And the Russian Volunteer Corps, I don't know about the other one, but the Russian Volunteer Corps issued its own statement that suggested that uh, it hadn't been driven out so much as it had completed whatever goal it was trying to attain and and that it would be back uh, to do more. Ukrainian officials, as I say, continue to sort of deny direct involvement in the operation, but they they have uh, done this sort of like chickens coming home to roost, tongue-in-cheek, you know, wink and a nod, wink and a nudge, type of thing when they've denied involvement. So it, it seems pretty clear that uh, they were supporting these groups, uh, but they're, they're using them again as, as cutouts to, to be able to deny any direct uh, involvement in attacks on Russian soil. So let's talk about the New York Times's report on the Kremlin drone strike. Yeah, this feeds uh, sort of into the same thing. The, the New York Times reported uh, earlier this week that the consensus uh, of the U.S. intelligence community, or at least with uh, kind of one of these low confidence assessments, is that Ukraine, the Ukrainians were most likely responsible for the attempted drone strike on the Kremlin earlier this month. Surprise, surprise. Uh, you know, only the people who kind of clung to the false flag story, despite lack of evidence or even uh, lack of it making much sense, uh, would be, you know, surprised to learn that this was the Ukrainians that did that, who did this. The, the drones appear to have been, according to this at, uh, analysis, at least, uh, appear to have been, uh, short range. So that means they were launched from somewhere pr- fairly close to Moscow. So within Russia, certainly, which again suggests maybe one of these Russian partisan cutout groups, uh, actually carried out the operation with Ukrainian support. But the upshot of this is, again, this is from the New York Times piece, that there are, you know, mounting concerns uh, among at least some folks in the U.S. government that Ukrainian intelligence agencies are essentially operating without oversight at this point, that they're being given very vague instructions by senior Ukrainian government officials, and then they're going off and kind of freelancing uh, on their own. This is by design to give the give people like Volodymyr Zelensky and his top officials, uh, plausible deniability and, and, you know, to be able to say, we don't, we don't have anything to do with this. We didn't order anything like this, uh, while these attacks are, are going on anyway. Um, and, and, uh, you know, obviously the concern here is that at some point they, they do something that causes an escalation in the conflict, uh, which is something that, uh, the U.S. at least, uh, officially says it doesn't want. And certainly there are reasons to hope that things do not escalate, let's say, out of Ukraine. Uh, because that could go very, very badly. So, uh, you know, just something else to to be worried about, I suppose. 
I'm always worried, Derek. So thank you so much for providing that for me. Uh, I, I like to like to serve. <laughs> I, I'm here to serve. You're here to serve. Uh, let's talk a little bit about uh, the Wagner Group and uh, their taking of Bakhmut. Yes, uh, Wagner over the weekend. Uh, when I say Wagner, I mean Yevgeny Prigozhin, the the uh, owner operator of the the Wagner Group, uh, announced the capture of Bakhmut uh, in full. Over the weekend, Vladimir Putin later congratulated uh, him and Wagner, and he threw in uh, the Russian military, although this was uh, really Wagner's operation. So, you know, they seem to have established control over the entire city. Now, Ukrainian officials have been uh, insisting that they still have some tiny sliver of territory in, inside Bakhmut. They've done this for several days now. I, I, I you know, I, I suspect that's... Uh, Maybe subjective. I mean, who, you know, at this point, the city's so devastated. Who's to say really where the city limits are anymore? Uh, but, you know, I, for all intents and purposes, I don't, I don't think there's any reason to think that the Ukrainians have a substantial foothold there. Uh, Prigozhin also said over the weekend that his forces would be withdrawing from Bakhmut and turning the city over to the regular Russian military. They've, uh, from what I understand, they have started doing that. Uh, I, I don't know how far along that process is, but they are in the process of pulling out a Bakhmut and uh, regular Russian military coming in. Now, uh, for uh, the past couple of weeks, I would say, the Ukrainians have been making minor advances around the outskirts of Bakhmut, both to the north and the south. Uh, this has led to a lot of speculation in Western media that the Russians are now about to be in the you know reverse position that the Ukrainians have been in for the last several months, uh, they're they're going to be stuck in Bakhmut and surrounded. Uh, I, that that seems a little far fetched. I mean, if you look at, at the movements that the Ukrainians have made on on any map that's kind of tracking these sorts of things, they're they're nowhere close to surrounding the city. Uh, so I don't think we're we're at that point yet, or near that point, I should say. Uh, the Russians in the city may be vulnerable to attacks from their flanks. Uh, as the Ukrainians do have some stronger position, again, on uh, kind of the northern and southern ends of the city. But, um, you know, I, I think they're, uh, they're in probably going to be fairly dug in. Uh, and I don't know that the Ukrainians have the uh, manpower at this point, especially since they're supposedly amassing forces for their big some spring uh, counteroffensive. I don't think they, I, I doubt that they have the, the, manpower or the uh, muscle at this point to, to push the Russians back out of the city. Let's move on to the F-16s in Ukraine. Yes, so this was uh, abrupt, I guess. Uh, just a few days, uh, I believe we, we mentioned last week, the international coalition that uh, the UK and the Netherlands formed to ensure that uh, Ukraine got all the support for, you know, in terms of aircraft and training that it needed uh, up to and including the provision of F-16s. Joe Biden at the G7 summit in Japan on Friday uh, told everybody that he was cool with that. He's going to allow, he will allow European F-16 operators to train Ukrainian pilots. Uh, a couple of countries have already stepped forward. I think Poland was one. Norway might be another one uh, to say that they're prepared to to uh, offer training to uh, to the Ukrainians. And that's leading up, of course, to them actually getting F-16s, which, again, it sounds like the U.S. Uh, certainly you wouldn't think that Biden would okay the training if he was going to stand in the way uh, of actually providing them with the airplanes. 
this will come, uh, this comes according again to the AP, uh, after months, what, what it termed months of internal debate, uh, and talks with allies over this issue. Uh, the Biden administration has been kind of poo-pooing the idea of F-16s because, uh, in the short run, there really is no short run to this. It's going to be months before Ukrainian pilots are, are able to fly these planes uh, with any facility. It's going to take time to bring uh, logistics online to maintain and operate those planes in Ukraine. And even at that point, there, there's there's a whole set of interoperability questions in, in terms of how the F-16 fits in with the rest of the Ukrainian military. There's a whole support mechanism uh, in, for example, the U.S. military, where the F-16 is integrated into uh, a much larger set of aircraft and uh, systems that just don't exist in Ukraine. So there's some question about how effective they would even be. But apparently, uh, the administration has now decided to start looking long term to a future where the Ukrainian military is, of course, armed and uh, funded and trained by the U.S. to the great benefit of uh, U.S. defense contractors. So there, they seem to be now okay uh, with the F-16. And it, what will probably happen is these European countries who are offering training will eventually, since many of them are on the F-35 uh, wait list, as it were, uh, will offer at their F-16s to Ukraine. Uh, so the U.S. won't be providing them directly necessarily, uh, but they'll get them secondhand from these other countries who are waiting for upgrades uh, from the U.S. So that's that's where things stand. Uh, 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 it is it's been I think inevitable since this issue became uh, since this became a thing that the U.S. would eventually come around, and and uh, it seems that it has. What a shock! Um, yeah. Let's end the Ukraine section with a little discussion of Zelensky's uh, diplomatic outreach. Yes, there's been a lot of this. Zelensky, of course, uh, visited the the G7 uh, with Biden and the rest of the gang in Japan over the weekend. Uh, This was part of what appears to be a larger diplomatic outreach to what I would term, broadly speaking, the non-aligned world, uh, countries that have not fallen in line behind the uh, you're with us or against us on Ukraine position and are uh, can have condemned the Russian invasion, but haven't really gone along with sanctions and don't really see this as their problem. Zelensky, prior to, to going to the G7, made a surprise visit to the Arab League summit in Saudi Arabia on Friday. Uh, that was, of course, the, the highly anticipated uh, Arab League summit because Bashar al-Assad was going to be there for the first time since the Syrian civil war started. Uh, his appearance was kind of overshadowed uh, by Zelensky showing up un, uh, unbeknownst to, I think, anybody except maybe the Saudis, uh, turning up and giving a speech and kind of, you know, thanking the Saudis, but also chiding some of the Arab states for their relationships with uh, with Russia and kind of pressing them to to take Ukraine's side in this conflict. Then, uh, then he went to the G7, where his focus really seems to have been not so much talking to the the leaders of the G7, who are which is sort of preaching to the choir at this point, uh, but meeting with Narendra Modi, the Prime Minister of India, who was there at the G7 as an observer. India is a huge trade partner of the Russians. Uh, it has not supported the war. It's not hasn't supported the Russian invasion. Uh, but it also hasn't really gotten on board with sanctions, as I say, and, and, and some of these measures, punitive measures that the, the West has taken. So Zelensky was very keen to meet with Modi. The foreign minister of Ukraine, Dmitry Kuleba, is on a tour of Africa at present where he's trying to shore up support there. Many, many African countries have 
uh, again, refused to jump on the bandwagon. Um, and uh, the only other thing, I guess, uh, of note here is that while uh, Zelensky was very keen to meet with Modi, he apparently snubbed uh, Brazilian President Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva. He kind of scheduled uh, a meeting and then uh, skipped it, claimed that his schedule was uh, too packed and he he was he couldn't make it. So uh, Lula seems to have been uh, a little bit miffed by that. I, I think there's been some unfair coverage uh, of that that snub uh, unfair to Lula, I would say, but um, you know, that's, that's an interesting development too. I suppose maybe uh, Zelensky just doesn't see Brazil as all that instrumental here, or maybe he's decided to embarrass Lula for some reason. Uh, Lula has been uh, again, sort of uh, vocally uh, non-aligned. He's, he's taken some positions that have angered the U S that seem to sort of, favor russia a bit but he's also condemned the invasion and and uh you know has has insisted that he's he's not supporting the russians he just doesn't uh, see this as a as an issue that that brazil needs to entangle itself in let's move on to our segment on the new cold war and let's start with uh the g7 on china so yes in addition to ukraine and there were you know new sanctions and and all that wonderful stuff that were announced at the G7. In addition to that, the big topic was, um, unsurprisingly, China. There was some, I would say, mixed messaging that came out of that. Uh, The post-summit press conference that was held by Joe Biden, uh, Biden said that the the G7 had agreed to, uh, this is the new phrase of the the du jour, I guess, de-risk and and diversify uh, their relationships with China, basically, to develop other global supply networks that aren't dependent on Chinese manufacturing. Uh, this sounds, you know, relatively benign. It, it, it comes after, uh, the COVID pandemic kind of tr- stretched, uh, the current s- supply chain that does basically run through China and in almost every respect, uh, kind of stretched it to capacity. So there are some arguments outside of the new Cold War context. Uh, for a more diversified supply chain and more diversified networks. But the, the U.S. talks this game about, you know, we're not trying to antagonize, we're not trying to uh, cut off relations with China or divest from China, we're trying to diversify, and yet its policies, uh, in contrast with its rhetoric, look a lot more like divestment, uh, and not just unilateral uh, divestment, but divestment that that we force on the rest of the world through export controls and uh, other you know, economic tools of coercion that the that the U.S. possesses. Uh, nevertheless, the 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 press conference was was very focused on this kind of you know we're we're just uh, diversifying. It's not a big deal. Diversifying sounds like a, you know it's a good word. Diversify. Uh, on the other hand, Biden, while he was in Japan, met with the other leaders of the Quad, the group that includes Australia, Japan, and India, uh, along with the U.S., that is not explicitly anti-China, but uh, really is, is an anti-China bloc. Uh, this, this meeting had to take place in Japan because Biden canceled his visit uh, that was supposed to come after the, the G7 summit, his visit to Australia. Uh, he canceled that to go back to D.C. and negotiate over the debt ceiling, uh, how much he's going to going to give to the Republicans. So that message, uh, after that group met, the the message was uh, really a, much more 
strident. There was a statement uh, uh, saying that the group uh, strongly opposes destabilizing or unilateral actions that seek to change the status quo by force or coercion. I assume they weren't talking about anything the United States does. So uh, clearly they were talking about China uh, in reference to Taiwan, in reference to Chinese maritime claims in, for example, the South China Sea or the East China Sea. Uh, and they did take a few more kind of veiled shots at things like the Belt and Road uh, and, and other aspects of Chinese policy. So uh, somewhat mixed messaging, uh, I would say, coming out of that. Let's end today with a discussion of the U.S.-Papua New Guinea defense deal. Yes, uh, this was also supposed to be part of Biden's uh, Pacific trip that he canceled to go back and do debt ceiling stuff. Uh, he was supposed to stop in Papua New Guinea on the way to Australia, briefly, uh, this would have made him the first sitting U.S. president to visit Papua New Guinea, uh, canceled again to go back to Washington and engage in, in the debt ceiling farce. Uh, so Anthony Blinken, uh, U.S. Secretary of State, went instead to Papua New Guinea on Monday and signed uh, a, a number of documents with uh, James Marape, the, the prime minister of Papua New Guinea. Uh, but the, the headline was a very wide-ranging defense cooperation agreement. Uh, it includes U.S. support for maritime surveillance in Papua New Guinean waters. Now, this is, from, from Papua New Guinea's side, this is supposed to curb illegal fishing, and it's something that they're very keen to, to get U.S. assistance on because it's a major economic issue for the Papua New Guinean government. Uh, but from the U.S. side, this is, of course, about getting access uh, or maintaining access to Papua New Guinean maritime spaces that could wind up uh, being very useful uh, in, if in the event of a, a conflict with China. Uh, there were other aspects of this uh, new economic aid and investment. Um, also, this is kind of, you know, competition with China in the hearts and minds sense. Uh, Blinken met with leaders of 13 other Pacific states, uh, in total the 14-member Forum for India-Pacific Islands Cooperation, who were all in uh, Papua New Guinea at the same time, uh, again, to meet with Modi, actually, who was on his way uh, to Australia. So he met with all those leaders, and again, sort of a hearts and minds type of, uh, type of appeal. Uh, from, for Papua New Guinea, the, the, these, these maritime agreements, and the U.S. is doing the, the, its, uh, you know, new, renewing its coalition uh, or uh, support agreements with uh, Palau and, and Micronesia. I think the Micronesian one just... Uh, its COFA agreement just just was uh, signed actually a couple of days ago. But, you know, these countries always stress that they're not going to allow their territory or their maritime uh, areas to be used by the U.S. militarily in, uh, in the event of war with China. They do this to, uh, you know, assuage Beijing. Uh, I, I'm quite certain that the U.S., uh, feels differently about it, although uh, it wouldn't say that publicly. Uh, and these agreements are always made, uh, you know, in a, in a way that is very lopsided toward uh, the great power side. Uh, you know, there is some smattering of economic aid. There's a you know smattering of security assistance, uh, but really, this is this is a document that that gives the U.S. what it wants in the region. So, just more wonderful new Cold War stuff. The U.S. should always get what it wants, and you should always get what you want by listening to American Prestige. Thanks, everyone, and we'll see you soon. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.